0: My pleasure uh, this morning to introduce to you uh, somebody that many of you probably know and know better than me, to be quite honest, uh, Corbett Cutts. He and his family were uh, members here for seven years and most recently moved to Kansas City, uh, where he um, is in business out there. Still, apparently a professor at William Jessup University, which is incredibly uh, crazy. Um, and he's here this morning to deliver us uh, God's word and, and join us in welcoming, giving him a center point Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Brian, for the introduction, and good morning, everybody. Uh, It it is good to be back with you all. Uh, As Brian mentioned, just over a year ago, my family packed up everything we owned and made the very exciting and very scary move from Roseville, California to Kansas City, Missouri. I gave you a map in case you didn't know where Missouri was. Now you do. I have to admit, though, I think I've settled into life in the Midwest pretty well. I mean, I grew a beard which is like the state entrance exam. I have learned that barbecuing is done with wood, grilling is with propane, and I have introduced y'all into my vocabulary. But it's not that bad, right? It's not like I started wearing flannel all the time and picked up some obscure hobby like axe throwing. Oh, no, wait, I did. It's actually a lot of fun. In all seriousness, I wanted to just take a brief moment this morning to say thank you. As Brian mentioned, my family called Centerpoint home for the better part of seven years. And I am thankful that even from 1,900 miles away, we can still be a part of that extended family. Whether it's through the podcast or or following along online, that is important to me. I like to listen to the podcast on my way home from work. And there are two things I am acutely aware of. The first is that Jim's jokes haven't gotten any better. <laughs> Secondly, more importantly though, is that this church is in amazing pastoral hands with Jim, Nancy, and Brian. <laughs> <So. clears throat> For several months now, y'all have been involved in a sermon series I told you it was there, in the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're going to take a brief break from that study to celebrate Palm Sunday, the day where we remember and rejoice in Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We're going to do so primarily using Mark's Gospel in chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. But it is interesting to note that this account is captured in all four Gospels. And each writer has its own nuanced flavor that we'll borrow from as appropriate. But we'll stay really grounded in Mark's gospel. But before we look to God's word, will you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we each come to you this morning with our own set of expectations. But today I pray that you help us set those expectations aside and let you be you. Open our ears, our hearts, our hearts. In our minds, so we might see you revealed to us through your holy word. We offer this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps, or if it's more convenient to follow on screen, you're welcome to do so as well, to Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, which says this, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I have to admit that when I was a kid, and even in recent memory, I had this vision that this was the moment when Israel finally got it. They finally recognized that Jesus had come to save them from their sinful selves. And in response, the only thing they could do was to shout and worship, Hosanna, which literally translates best to save us. Now, despite everything that was about to unfold in the week to come, I saw this as that flicker of light in the darkness where the people actually got it. But in reality, I don't think they did. Because, see, they were hoping for someone to restore Israel by force so that they could enthrone an earthly king. But their expectations of the Messiah were simply far too short-sighted. They let their own expectations of the Messiah cause them to miss the real Jesus. It reminds me of the, uh, the little boy who couldn't come to Palm Sunday because he was sick, right? So uh, when his parents came home, they all had palm branches, much like you saw with the children today. And the boy asked him, what are those for? And his father explained to him that they were the branches that they held over Jesus' head or put on the path in front of him as he passed by. And this... In a sad, dejected little voice, the boy goes, Man, wouldn't you know it, the one Sunday I miss, and Jesus shows up. <laughs> that was my gym joke. That's, that's. You know, unlike the little boy, the crowd that day didn't miss Jesus. Right? He was right there making that triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But what they missed was the real reason for that triumphant entry. And to be honest, I don't blame them because their expectations of the Messiah had been ingrained into their culture. For generations, they had heard the scriptures. They had thirsted on them to the point that they thought they knew precisely what the Messiah would look like, what he would say, and more importantly, what he would do. Now, To get a better appreciation for this narrow view, I think it's important to spend a couple of minutes to understand the context of today's passage. If we uh, flip back to chapter 10, Mark writes that Jesus and the disciples were on their way to Jerusalem from Jericho. And of course, as we read on, we know that they were going to celebrate the Passover, which is Israel's most sacred holiday, commemorating when God pulled Israel out of the, the chains of bondage when they were enslaved in Egypt. Now, the very fact that this story unfolds in the shadow of the Passover gives us two very important points to consider. The first is that there were a lot of people that would have been making their way to Jerusalem. Scholars estimate that first century Jerusalem had somewhere between a normal population of uh, 50 to 100,000 people. But the expectation is during the Passover week, that number would swell potentially to 10 times the normal population. So that means anywhere between 500,000 and 1 million people would be in Jerusalem for that week. Most likely, the crowd in our passage today is a a subset of that influx. Men, women, children making their way to Jerusalem. Some perhaps following with Jesus from Jericho, listening to him teach, watching him perform miracles. It's also important to note that this crowd would have been singing anyway. Uh, Scholars believe that during the Passover, worshipers making their way to Jerusalem would have sung a section of the Psalter known as the Psalms of Ascent. One of those Psalms is Psalm 118, which we see Mark capture in his account of this event. In Psalm 118, it says, Lord, save us, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This passage almost begs us to see a million people seeing Jesus as the one who would save humanity from their sin and spontaneously bursting into song because they recognize who he is as the Messiah. But the truth is, is that the song they sung was a psalm of ascent that they would have sung whether Jesus was there or not. But that doesn't mean that this pilgrimage was not different from the others, because it most certainly was. In John's account of this particular event, John writes that the crowd comes out and directs the psalm to the crowd, right? And in that, we start to see that there is a renewed sense of hope that Jesus is the Messiah, They come out carrying their palm fronds and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That psalm was not sung just as praise to God, but it was sung directly to Jesus himself. So on this pilgrimage, there was a growing sense of hope of Christ as the Messiah. But also there was a growing tension. We don't have to look very hard in Mark's gospel and elsewhere to see the tension that rises between Jesus and the Pharisees, their disdain for him, and how it starts with them trying to test him, and then trap him, and then, of course, plotting to kill him, and even going so far along the way is to plot to kill Lazarus as a means to discredit him. And yet, at the confluence of this hope and tension, we find Jesus, who's not just sitting idly by rather he begins to purposefully do things that challenge the expectations of the crowd as he asserts himself as king now the most notable action jesus takes is to send two of his disciples off to fetch him an animal to ride on now for you and i you might think this is kind of a bit of a throwaway line cuz you know maybe he was tired he wanted to ride But Jewish custom of the day was that when you made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, if you were able, you walked. You made that pilgrimage on foot. So the very act of calling for an animal for him to ride on draws attention to Jesus. Now often what we focus on more, though, is what animal it was. The consensus is it's a young donkey uh, that was fetched for Jesus, both Mark and Luke emphasize that this was an animal that had never been ridden on before. And that's interesting in and of its own self because in the Old Testament, an animal that was often uh, set aside for sacred purposes was never to be used for any ordinary purpose. And the same kind of rule applied for kings. No one used or rode a king's animal, in this case a donkey, except the king himself. Again, we see Jesus beginning to assert himself as king, but not just any king. Because as Jesus mounted that donkey and made his way down the Mount of Olives and up into Jerusalem, a messianic prophecy from Zechariah was fulfilled. Zechariah 9.9 reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Over 500 years before, the prophet Zechariah announced that the king who would restore Israel to a rightful place would come riding on a donkey. And before the crowd that day, the king of kings made his way to Jerusalem, fulfilling that prophecy. And this did not go unnoticed. Matthew, Mark, and John all remarked that the crowd responded to Jesus on that donkey by laying palm fronds on the ground or waving them over his head as he passed by. Now, the the palm fronds themselves actually have significance because they reflect Israel's celebration of Judas Maccabeus when he restored the temple from the Seleucids nearly 200 years before. See, Judas Maccabeus had led the last liberating movement for Israel, restoring the temple By way of the sword. And on that day, the crowd saw Jesus as the one who would do the same for them against Rome. But their expectations were just plain wrong. There was incongruence between what they expected of the Messiah and the Messiah himself. It's a lot like parenting, really. Uh, Before Nicole, my wife, and I had kids, we talked a lot about what our family would be like. Uh, We both came from big families, so we weren't immune to what life with kids was like, but we decided we were going to be different. We would never serve chicken nuggets for dinner. We were not going to be locked up in the house on the weekends with small kids. We were going to take hikes as a family. Basically, our life was going to look something like this. Fast-forward five years and three kids later, and our lives look a little bit more like this. (laughs) Our expectations about parenting did not align with the reality of parenting itself. Did you know you can buy a five-pound bag of dinosaur nuggets at Costco? It's a good source of protein. Did you know that hiking with a toddler is awful? Don't do it. (laughs) In similar fashion, we want to look at the crowd and tell them, you got it wrong. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. But he didn't come as the conquering king. He came, as the prophet Isaiah says, as the suffering servant. The crowd was expecting a warrior to ride into Jerusalem on a stallion. But what they got was something far greater. They got the Prince of Peace coming on a donkey. Now, it, it's easy for us to look back to the lens of history and question how they missed it for what it meant for Jesus to be the real Messiah. We have the luxury of reading the scriptures through the echoes, the illusions, the prophecies, the narratives of scripture that all point to Jesus. We have that luxury, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, <clears throat> the reality is, is that our expectations don't always align with Jesus either, do they? In fact, I would go to so far to say is that the thread that binds the crowd in our passage with us together today is that our expectations are often focused on of what we expect God to do for us now. Now, there's a number of ways in which our expectations of God can deviate from God's expectations for us, but I think there are three themes that really run through almost all of those examples. The first theme is that we often mistake Christ for comfort. When we start to view God or our relationship with him as a means to safeguard the comfort that we think we need in this life, our expectations quickly begin to deviate from his, Because God doesn't promise us this. In fact, Scripture seems to be pretty clear that it's quite the opposite. Whether it's Paul in his letter to the Romans that we are to die to sin so that we might live in Christ, or Jesus himself who tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. The idea of safeguarding our comfort in this life is foreign to Scripture. But yet, this is the form of Christianity that many people have started to, to work through. Uh, in Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live?, Schaefer makes a really interesting observation that what many Christians have done have started to adopt a framework that borrows from the world that is built on two pillars. Personal peace and affluence. Now, a personal peace, what Schaeffer means, is that people just want to be left alone. Don't bother me with the problems of this world, because i got enough problems of my own. Just leave me alone so I can work on me. And by affluence, Schaeffer means exactly that. The quest to accumulate stuff. More stuff. Newer stuff. Shinier stuff. Lots of stuff. The problem is that when you start with these two pillars, and then you try to introduce Jesus, we're left with the choice. Do we compromise our comfort, or do we compromise Christ? And if we're honest with ourselves, we compromise Christ more often than we care to admit. Now, this compromise can take on a number of forms, but one way in which I hear it is the casual way in which some of my students might talk about Jesus as their friend. Now, let me be clear, we are invited to participate in a very intimate and personal relationship with God. But that invitation does not mean that Jesus is effectively our college roommate. Jesus doesn't look the other way when it comes to our sin. He's not chiefly concerned with your comfort and just your happiness and letting you do you. He's our Lord, he's our Savior, and he commands us to give up our sinful ways so that we might find a new life in Christ. And at any point when we decide that we're going to put our comfort over Christ, we're going to deviate from God's expectations for our lives. The second theme that seems to run through many of our examples is that we often don't make room for what God wants in our lives. If I asked you to spend a few minutes and write down your expectations for God, what would that look like? Whether it's today or tomorrow or the next 10 years what might that look like in your own life i spent some time to do this exercise and i came up with two my my expectations for god is one that he gives me the wisdom and the patience to raise my daughters so that they might choose to follow him and that god also gives me the guidance and the discernment for any possible career opportunities that come along the way that's my list And if yours looks anything like mine or perhaps completely different, I'm going to venture a guess to say that that list is good. It's biblical. God honors that list. Part of our relationship with God is that He invites us to offer our prayers to Him and God listens to us. And isn't that the amazing part about it? That God wants to hear from you? And He doesn't just want lip service either. He wants the real you. He wants the you that is hurting and confused because God doesn't seem to be present in your pain. He wants the you that's elated because you can't stop worshiping and praising God because you got that job. Or you went on a date with somebody and they finally seem normal for once. (laughs) God wants the you that's exhausted and ready to give up pushing forward because you just seem stuck and you're not making any progress. God invites the real you and the real me to have a real relationship with him. But real relationships aren't one sided. We're really good at talking to God, we're not so good at listening to God. I, just think back to the last time you prayed. How much time did you spend in prayer talking to God? And how much time did you spend asking God what he wants? Or just sat there in silence, waiting for God to speak. This week, I want to challenge you to take time to listen for God. Layer into your prayer life the time to just be present. Ask God what he wants to do in your life. Or how he wants to use your present circumstances for his glory. Because if you want to know what God wants in your life, you got to work to turn your monologue into a dialogue. The third and final theme that causes our expectations to deviate from God's is that we suffer from nearsightedness. You know, if you suffer from physical nearsightedness, it's usually pretty easy to know that something's off. Objects even just a few feet in front of you become blurry and difficult to see. But, if we suffer from spiritual nearsightedness, it can be harder to diagnose because the markers are far more subtle. That usually starts out slow and unintentional, right? We justify why we need to skip our quiet time. Our prayer lives start to slowly erode into a checklist of items that we just simply want to possess. We no longer make room for Christ and what God wants, because we find comfort far more appealing than Jesus. But what starts out slow can easily develop into a form of spiritual myopia where we no longer see God as he really is, but we see a caricature of him that reflects the desires of the world and not the desires of God. The result is that we forget how short this life is, how long eternity is, and that what we do right here and now matters. We can miss out on opportunities to be all-in, sold-out followers of Jesus Christ. We can miss out on the opportunity to say, God, use me as you see fit. Or Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to shake the spiritual myopia from our eyes, and put on the corrective lenses of spiritual discipline so that we can seek God's will in our lives and ensure that our expectations are in alignment with his. Will you pray with me? Lord, on this Palm Sunday, we are reminded of your triumphant entry into Jerusalem, We see the scriptures come alive before our eyes as you fulfill what was prophesied in Zechariah. And yet we also see the crowd and the disciples miss out on the fulfillment of those scriptures because their expectations were out of alignment with you. Give us the strength today to persevere, to reject the comforts of this life so that we might align with your will. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer and all God's people said, Amen.